Goldthorpe is number one. A kickstart for Australia. Gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. A perfect score, 10.0 for Nancy Cavanici, a perfect score. The first time I've never seen anyone get a So in over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, winning by daylight and setting a world record. 9.68, the wind is okay. How easy was that? It is Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for another interview episode. So excited to always bring you these interviews. They're always good. They're always great. And I'm super pumped and excited to bring you today's interview, our first ever taste of golf. That is right. We have an Olympic golfer on the show. Marcus Fraser represented Australia back in 2016 at the Rio Olympics and was so close to a medal. So close. A tie for fifth. Led for the first two rounds. Was in the bronze medal position in the final round. And so very nearly scored Australia's first ever golfing medal. And this is a fascinating chat with Marcus. Learning a lot about his days growing up. Playing golf in rural Victoria. How that led him to joining the pro circuit in Europe. What it actually takes to become a pro golfer, a dream of many people listening to this show, I no doubt imagine. And then just the experience of becoming an Olympian, a a thing that he probably never realized he would ever be able to do, given that golf, for the most part of his career, was never an Olympic sport. And the opportunity presented itself, and he took it with both hands. So a great chat here with Marcus. You're going to hear it right now. Here is our chat with Olympic golfer Marcus Fraser. excited for our next guest here on Off the Podium. He is a professional golfer who has been pro for nearly 20 years, touring the world, doing what so many people out there would love to do as a living. And also an Olympian competed in 2016 at the Rio Olympics when golf made its return to the Olympics after more than 100 years. And I'm very excited to learn a lot more about that experience, his entire career. As we get our first taste of golf on Off the Podium today. It's a pleasure to welcome Marcus Fraser to the show. Marcus, first of all, welcome to Off the Podium. It's a pleasure to chat with you today. Thanks, mate. It's, uh, yeah, a bit of fun. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. It's, it really is kind of one of those things that I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going, wow, Marcus lives the dream. He gets to play golf for a living and kind of tour the world and, and do all that, everything that people kind of just take for granted sometimes on a, on a Saturday morning. How, how often do you get people just saying that to you? Like, you're living my dream. How do I become you? I want to be a pro golfer and tour the world hitting balls for a living. Yeah, it's fairly common now. Yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time down at my home club down here at Peninsula Kingswood now. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, we've got like nearly 2,000 members here. So it's, uh, there's a lot of the time people, you know, reminding me. But, yeah, I know myself how fortunate um, I've been to be able to go and play the game I love um, and do it for a living. So, it, um, you know, travel the world doing it, it's, you know, I would um, I'd never change a thing for any, um, for anything. I, it's, uh, yeah, I, I realise how lucky I've been to be able to do it for such a long time. I'm, you know, obviously I finished up pre-COVID um, and obviously no one has travelled for a long time, but, you know, I've, I've stopped uh, travelling and playing um, these days, but, you know, I was... Very fortunate to spend a lot of time in Europe and and do exactly that, play the game I loved. 
What what age do you discover this love for golf? Was it sort of something that came about very early and sort of how did you discover golf? Yeah, I think for me, I've got two brothers, younger and younger brother and older brother. Young, uh, older brother's a professional golfer as well. And um, We grew up in Corowa country, New South Wales, on a, on a little hobby farm and we used to hit balls out in the paddock. Um, you know, all of a sudden that turned into hitting balls around the house. So that was the front nine and then we'd turn around and come back the other way and that was the back nine. And, um, you know, we just hit towards a tomato steak in the middle of the paddock. And wow. um, once we, you know, Dad saw that we were, were all pretty keen on it, he joined us up down at the local golf club and um, Mum and Dad still live back in Coral. So um, it, uh, it quickly turned into pretty much spending as much time as we could down at the golf club. And then, yeah, I mean, once... Yeah, once all of us um, kind of found golf, it was uh, all the other sports. My younger brother played a lot of hockey and represented Victoria in state hockey. But, um, yeah, I think once Adam, my older brother, and myself found golf, it was uh, we weren't really interested in much else. It was just golf, golf, golf. Had, had Corowa ever produced uh, professional golfers before or were you and your brother the first? Yeah, I think my brother was, I think, I think the first. And then James McLean, who played on the PGA Tour, um, he was from the little town across... The other side of the Murray River, Jason Wallace um, as well. Obviously, a lot of trainees came through the, the shop there and um, and had a go. But, um, yeah, Shannon Wallace, who caddy, still caddies to this day on the on the PGA Tour, has caddied for, you know, a lot of top players over there, including Brant Snedeker and um, Nathan Green and Matt Jones. So, you know, from this little country town, we've always probably been known as producing AFL footballers. Um, but we've produced our, our fair share of golfers as well. And even, um, you know, Olympic gold medalist Steve Molan um, for the hockey team. He uh, wow. is the goalkeeper for um, for Australia. I can't remember exactly which Olympics, but... That would have been Athens, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so he, you know, it, uh, for a little country town of five and a half, six thousand people, we've, uh, we've definitely done well, that's for sure. I was going to say, birthplace federation and the birthplace of all these uh, these athletes. What's in the water there in Coral? I think more people need to go drink it. Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great part of the world. That, um, yeah, three and a half hours from Melbourne, so it, uh, it's just that perfect. We sort of go up a lot of well, pre-COVID when we're not in lockdowns. We go up uh, you know, as, as often as we can. It's, uh, leave on a Friday afternoon and get up and spend the whole week with mom, weekend with mum and dad. And, um, yeah, great place to... Yeah, like in, I mean, I wouldn't have wanted to grow up anywhere else, that's for sure. And, you know, obviously when we go back now and my wife, um, we went to school together back there and um, yeah, our kids love going back and, and spending time there. So it's pretty uh, pretty unique unique part of the world, that's for sure. You mentioned AFL just quickly. I always like to get this for the, you know, I mainly obviously our Australian guests here who know what AFL is. I saw on your Instagram you'd posted a picture of you at the Anzac Day game. Am I assuming you're either a Bombers or a Magpies man or was it just a case of soaking up the atmosphere on that day and you go for someone, I'm just going to say, better than those two teams? No, definitely an Essendon fan. It, uh, yeah, we've got a, it, there's no love-hate relationship with Collingwood. It, uh, it's just a hate relationship. It, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure they feel exactly the same about us, but... That's one of those rivals that we've always. It's like any footy or any code of footy. We, you know, that's our number one rival, and um, yeah, I'm mad AFL fan and and mad Bombers fan. So it, um, you know, that keeps me. I wouldn't say sane or maybe insane um, most weekends <laughs> with, with footy, but yeah, definitely love it. And um, through through that, been lucky enough to meet a couple of AFL footballers and and that sort of stuff. But their love of golf and my love of footy. It, uh, yeah, it's been uh, it's been pretty cool. 
I don't know if you see my shoulder there. I'm, I'm sort of one of your other rivals, fans, Air Carlton. So I, I share that hatred of Collingwood at the same time, but I think you and I aren't meant to like it. We've had a lot of Essendon supporters on the show recently, actually. Maybe it's an Olympic thing that so many Olympians go for the Bombers. Maybe we need to kind of get to the, the bottom of why so many Olympians go for Essendon. Yeah, I'm not sure. But, uh, yeah, they probably just recognise a great team. I think that's all. Bias, <laughs> bias at all, but I think we do, uh, yeah, 16 premierships along with you guys. At, uh, you know, I think we're... Right. We've won more grand finals, though, Marcus. I'm not playing that card again, but I'm just saying. No, we'll, we'll, move on from that. <laughs> we'll move on from that. Do do you at a certain point then sort of getting that passion for golf and kind of moving forward there was that then always a desire to to turn pro? And and I guess for those who maybe aren't overly familiar with how it works in golf and and turning pro, what what is that process? How do you actually go from playing as a kid and sort of working out the ranks and to be officially declared a, a pro when it comes to golf? Yeah, for me, it's, um, you know, it was, when I was a kid, it was never really on the radar. I mean, definitely watched British Open and the Masters and all those things on TV. And um, I think as I just gradually improved, I, I was going in town, I was just working in town. I left school, um, you know, just working in town, not really heading anywhere, I suppose. And then I kind of just fell in love with the game more and more. My best mate, Jason Wallace, he started coming down to Melbourne to play pennant golf. Um, so that was kind of a pretty big deal um, in those days. And so I came down and watched him and, and kind of couldn't believe how big a deal Pennant actually was. Um, so, you know, I started practicing a bit harder and then started traveling down with him and, and managed to get in the uh, minor Pennant team or the junior team at Kingswood Golf Club. Um, that kind of led to getting in the senior team. And then we were in Division One, the, the best division. And then um, all of a sudden I won the Victorian Amateur kind of out of nowhere, I'd suppose. Um, and then made my way into the Victorian state team. That kind of led to getting in the Victorian Institute of Sport on a scholarship, and which then led to getting in the Australian team. And all of a sudden, I didn't really see anything else. All I wanted to do was become a professional golfer. So it was it was kind of that pathway that just kept opening up for me. And it would, you know, there was obviously a lot of hard work that went into to getting. I was kind of just living and breathing golf nonstop. Um, nothing was getting in the way of that. And you know, all of a sudden. I was over at uh, European Tour School at the end of 2002, so it's basically a six-day tournament where you, you're just out there playing to try and finish in the top 30 to make your way onto a tour. Um, I got onto the secondary tour, lucky enough to win three times in the first year, which elevated me straight onto the, the European tour, the main tour, which is the second biggest tour in the world, um, and then lucky enough to spend nearly 17 years over in, in Europe playing. Um, so it happened pretty quick. Well, what felt like happened pretty quickly, it, uh, I just kept, kind of just pro- kept progressing and, and moving up each little step of the ladder, really. And um, yeah, all of a sudden, 43 now and, and not playing it. Uh, you know, all those memories are, are pretty cool. So when you get accepted onto the tour then, that basically signifies you can change your profession to professional golfer, essentially, as soon as you are on that tour. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the other way is to go through and do a traineeship and, you know, work in a golf shop for three to four years. And, um, you know, and this, I think that's the great thing about golf is that you can, you can either play, you can coach, you can go into different um, operations, um, management positions. There's quite a diverse range of different areas that we can go into. And then, and also, we're very lucky to be able to keep playing, you know, an AFL career, you're finishing. You've had a great career. You're finishing in your mid to early thirties. You know we can keep playing, and then opens up to a seniors tour after that. So we're very fortunate in this game, and you know, I think it's uh, I think it's one of the most amazing games in the world. 
Is there much of a choice factor or kind of what are the choice factors behind, say, choosing the European tour over the PGA tour? Is it sort of just it comes down to a location thing? Are there more benefits going one over the other? I mean, kind of how does that work choosing between the two tours? I think early days you're just trying to get somewhere to play. Um, I was lucky enough to go to be in the position to go straight over to European Q School. Um, you know, the VIS at that stage um, – helped us out getting over there. I had a lot of members at um, Kingswood Golf Club that helped me get started in, in being in the position to, to turn pro and, and go over and play. So, you know, without that, I would probably wouldn't have been in this position. So it's, uh, but yeah, it's just one of those things that it's probably a personal preference, I think, of where you, where you feel your game is suited, whether it be in Japan, whether it be in Europe, in America, in Asia somewhere. So it's, you know, or, or back home in Australia. So we're lucky enough to have our own tour in Australia. Um, so it's, you know, it, it's it probably comes down to a personal preference of where you would like to play. But then the really hard thing, the hardest thing in golf is getting onto a tour, finding somewhere to play. Once you've got a car, you know, you're out there, you're playing week in, week out. But, you know, trying to get access or or get exemptions into those tournaments and, and having the, um, the ability to go and play week in, week out is, is what every golfer craves. To be able to play three or four weeks in a row overseas is an ideal um, situation for us. And I can imagine it's also a sport too where, you know, given the, the different hemispheres when it comes to the seasons, I mean, you can obviously play for six months in the Northern Hemisphere and then come back to Australia and play. I mean, you can basically be playing golf 12 months of the year if you kind of really want to, I can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I was, when I was playing full-time, I was playing probably 30 weeks a year. Um, so I'd start off in the Middle East at the start of the year. We'd go up there for three or four weeks. You'd play in Asia on the way back home. You'd play some events in Australia. Then you'd go back up to Asia. Once it started warming up in Europe, we'd probably spend five months over in Europe playing. Um, the back end of the year, we'd, we'd stop in Asia and the Middle East again, back home to Australia for, you know, for our pinnacle events, the Australian Open, the Australian Masters, the Australian PGA, all these events that, um, you know, we were craving to wanting to play pretty fatigued and tired by the end of the year after all that golf and travel, but it kind of everything revolves around getting home to play in those big events. And, you know, they're the ones that mean the most to us, but it's, uh, yeah, but I mean, even when you're, when you're home, you, you're sort of thinking about your next trip. So you're kind of, um, you're ready to, you, you're trying to have a break, but your mind's still in, in trying to switch off from the previous trip, but then, almost engaged in the next trip. So you never really turn off from it, but uh, yeah, it's pretty full on. And is it similar to, to tennis in a way as well that you can be selective about the tournaments for say the ranking points, maybe sometimes for the money and obviously kind of leading up then to kind of keep those ranking points, everything. So when it comes to the majors that I'm assuming you need to have a certain amount of qualification points to automatically be in the field for, for a major. I mean, does it work similar to how tennis does in that aspect? Yes, it's kind of like a performance-based contract, really. It, um, the better you perform, the more opportunities open up. Um, I was really lucky enough to to play in, I think, 13 majors um, in my career and I think um, you know, 10 or 11 WGC. So they're, they're the events that you want to play in. You want to play in the biggest events possible. I, was, I never got to play in the Masters, but, um, you know, playing in British Opens and US PGAs, US Opens and WGCs, you know, in America and up in Asia, um, you know, those big events is, but that kind of just, it just came from, you know, the better you play in 
the smaller events, a bit like I spoke about earlier about progressing through amateur ranks into professional golf, you, you just need to keep improving. That's the only way um, we're able to, to get into those big events. And then if you're able to make your way into the top 50 in the world, then you do get a, a ticket into an automatic ticket into those major championships and the, the world events and, you know, all of a sudden your schedule changes so much, you're dropping the smaller events out the back end so that you can, you know, play in those bigger and better events. And is there like an obsession over your ranking? Like are you kind of always looking at where am I, where am I, how do I need to get there? Like I believe your highest ranking was 51. So, I mean, do you kind of look at that and go, okay, like I only need this to get into that top 50 you're talking about? Or is it something kind of more on the, on the back of your mind that you're not really focused on where you are ranked in the world at that point? Uh, when you're playing well, you're looking at your ranking, but when you're not playing well, you got uh, <laughs> you tell everyone, oh, I wouldn't have a clue where I am. But, um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a big way of measuring what we do. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing a little bit of coaching these days and, you know, I've, I've really found that interesting. we need to be able to measure how we're tracking. Um, if we can't do that, we're kind of we're living a, a little bit of a false one. So it's, uh, I think... You know, I was always someone who watched, you know, I watched leaderboards. I watched um, my ranking, whether it be on the money list, the order of merit, the, the world rankings, wherever it was, whatever tour I was playing on, I was always pretty conscious of what was actually happening. So, um, yeah, I think but when you're not playing well, you, you yeah, try and stay oblivious to it and only watch it when you're on, a, on an upward spiral. I want to talk obviously more about your Olympic experience in just a moment, but one thing I'd love to learn a little bit more and particularly our listeners probably as well, the training aspect of golf, because, you know, it's all well and good for us to sort of sit back and go, okay, well, there's not much training involved. You walk around and you hit a ball. But I mean, famously someone like Tiger Woods, when he would, you know, at his peak, he'd get a back injury. He'd be out for a while. You'd hear about these kind of things. And it's sort of a sport where often you kind of got to take a step back to really think of how these injuries can affect you as, as athletes. So I guess, long-winded uh, point to get to a question. What are sort of the, the key, I guess, training aspects that you are, are doing besides just constantly hitting balls and working on your, you know, your putting and your driving technique? Yeah, I think, you know, you're trying just to cover every single area as you possibly can. You know, when I was playing, I mean, I've never been the fittest person walking around, definitely not now, that's for sure. But, um, you know, I think you're, you're just trying to stay on top of every aspect of your, your game, whether it be a technique issue, whether it be a strategy issue, whether it be something in your body, you're trying to manage injuries. You've got, you know, I was really fortunate. I had an amazing team of people that were helping me, and that was through the Victorian Institute of Sport days. Tina Mayo, um, my osteo for you know over 20 years, um, knew my body a lot better than what I knew it. Um, I would see her twice a week when I came home. Um, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, twice a week. Dennis McDade, my coach. I was spending two or three days with him per week when I was home. You know, and trying to address every single component of your game, your body, your mind. Um, the brain's so important in this, not uh, not only in golf, but in, in all aspects of life. But it, it kind of, you're just trying to make sure that you, every little piece of your game is improving, whether it be you know, 1% a year, whatever it might be, because the guy that's behind you on the order of merit is working just as hard, if not harder. So he's, he, he's wanting to take your spot. I'm wanting to take the guy's spot that's in front of me. Um, and you're just on a, on a path that you, as I said earlier, you just don't see anything else. You're just on, a, on that trajectory that you're trying to just continually improve and just find little things that are going to help you perform better. 
Which it's also, I always love talking about the mental aspect uh, with our athletes on the show. And I mean, golf is one of these ones where I can imagine that is so important because it, when it comes down to it, you're having four rounds and kind of you get on a roll, you're in great. But then I guess those those mental aspects of if you're starting to have a bad day, it's kind of overcoming that. So, I mean, sort of what kind of things can you work on on a, on a mental aspect to really, I guess, get that brain in focus when you are on a tournament? Oh, absolutely. It's huge. It, uh, and as, as you go on and you get older, you really start to work out you know, there's a lot of, I suppose, demons that creep in over time and the more time you spend on a golf course. But, you know, I think there's, this again, it's not just one component. I think there's, you know, the way we approach the game, there's goal setting, there's, um, there's pre-shot routines, there's um, post-shot routines that you need to be on top of because if I'm, you know, when I was, I put my hand up and I was probably one of the worst after I hit a shot, I'd, I'd let it play on my mind for too long and I wasn't ready to hit the next shot or... You know, having all these strategies in place, um, you know, it's you can see it nowadays that I mean, Tiger kind of set the the precedent for um, for mind coaches and that all around the world. Once you know, fitness was obviously the top of his tree, but there's no one ever been, has ever been any or mentally stronger than what Tiger has been and is. You know, he's you know he kind of every golfer out there is kind of striving to to have that mindset that Tiger has had and, and does have. Um, you know, I think the way he came back and won the Masters a few years ago or a couple of years ago and is is one of the great sporting achievements in the world. Absolutely. It's something yeah. that I think is just what he's been through on and off the golf course to be able to come back and, and do what he did. And, you know, there's it's only a matter of time before he comes back from the accident that he had. At the start of the year, I think he's still it's young, isn't he? Isn't he only like he's that yeah, old? He's 46, old. 47, maybe. I'm not so young, yeah. Um, yeah, he's still got you know, I mean, I've been lucky enough to play with Tiger, and it's uh, it that's one of the, the things that career highlights, I suppose, having it that to be able to um, at the end of my career, knowing that I played with the best player of all time was is something that's pretty cool. Do you, do you have any go-to techniques for yourself, Marcus, when it comes to kind of helping you with the mental? Like do you have, you know, uh, I guess a, a, a technique that you do or kind of an activity that kind of helps you with the, the mind work? Not really, yeah. I think, I mean, I was really, always really big on um, my pre-shot routine. If I was if I had that under control and I had a lot of clarity to, to that, what I was trying to achieve in my shot, that was the thing that really stood out, I think. I would, you know, Dennis McDade, my coach, was really strong on practicing your routine as much as you practice your golf swing or your putting stroke, whatever it was. You know, we were really big on making sure that routine because you want that to be able to stand up on Sunday afternoon with nine holes, six holes, three holes to go. That last part, you know, you want to know that that just becomes instinctive and and part of your DNA. It's something that you need to own yourself. Um, so for me, it wasn't really um, any techniques so to speak, it was more just I would practice that routine when I was on the putting green or, or on the range, imagining I was out on the golf course so that it would stand up when I got out on the golf course. Golf gets included on the Olympic program once again in, in 2016, first time in 112 years that had been included. So obviously when you're 
playing golf, turn pro, all that sort of stuff. I, you know, something is probably as far away from the, the mental aspect that you could ever think that you could potentially go to an Olympics. But before we kind of get to what brought you to competing in Rio, was there any ever desire or kind of passion for an Olympics at one point, like throughout any other sports that you played maybe? Was it something that you would followed or was it kind of something so far away from what you were doing that you could never imagine that you would become an Olympian? Never in a million years. Uh, you know, for me as a kid growing up, it was all about you know watching the the Masters or the British Open, all these amazing tournaments. Never did I even think that golf would be in the Olympics. And and all of a sudden, the conversation started, and then it was like, oh, that's cool. You know, something something a, a bit different. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, I started to I was playing really well at that stage of my career, and um, I think. Some guys pulled out of the team and all of a sudden, you know, the mind starts to think, okay, I'm a chance to, to make this team. And I think Mark Leishman gave me a call and he said, uh, he said, I've just had to withdraw. There was some some um, family issues there that he he wasn't able to go. So it um, it kind of then I was, it became quite real. And um, he gave me a call and said, you know, you're next in line. I'm, I've withdrawn. So all of a sudden I was on that Olympic team and, um, you know, I was, I wanted to do it for my kids more than anything. It was more about from where I'd grown up in a little country town to to all of a sudden representing Australia in a two-man team over at the Olympics. On and as big as golf is around the world now, I think having that um, on my, uh, I suppose, resume, a golf resume, to to be an Olympian representing Australia. That's what you know. Once you get over there, you just work out pretty quickly or you um, that you're part of a, an amazing bigger team than what we're used to in golf but you know we're quite selfish I suppose or um, we we don't get to be part of a team very often and um, you know something that you know I'll never ever forget it's something I'm so glad I did and and very fortunate to be in that position and yeah you know, I just wanted to do it for my kids to, to show them that you know don't ever if you've got a dream or or you want to achieve something, if you you work your butt off, you can go on, you can go and chase it and go and do it. Um, you know, it was, it was more about them giving them something to for them in later in their lives to you know the old man can go and do it. There's no reason why you you guys can't. Because it was such an interesting lead up. I remember sort of in in Rio, and they were sort of talking about who our representative would be, and sort of everyone was pulling out. I mean, that was sort of the Zika virus. Remember that virus before the current one we've got right now, and everything along those lines. And it sort of seemed a bit unfair, I thought, to yourself and a lot of the other competitors that people were almost talking down the golf competition because so many of these players had pulled out. Yet that takes away from the fact that. As you were saying, you get to represent Australia, you get to go there. I mean, what was kind of like the, the feeling like sort of out there with the people that were there and kind of the media just seemed to want to be so negative about the golf tournament, whereas, you know, it was obviously a great opportunity for you and everyone else who was competing there. Well, I think that's just the media full stop, isn't it? They need to try and make a story out of it. We, They clearly didn't have, you know, the first time around, they didn't have the field that they wanted to have. Um, you know, I, I, I got on the team because some other guys – um, had family situations where they didn't want to go. And Zika, you know, they're looking at having Jason Day, Adam Scott, Mark Leishman, they're all, um, you know, young families and and their families were extending. So something like Zika was going to, it was a def, it was definitely a, a thing that could get in the way of them extending their family. So it's, I completely understand, but I, you know, I'd already had, um, we'd already had two kids and, um, 
yeah, it's, you know, I've, as soon as my opportunity came, I was throwing my hand up for it. But, you know, I think um, it's probably just the media making a story over. I think it was, you know, the result that when Justin Rose and, and Henrik Stenson was lucky enough to play with him the last day, that, you know, those two going at it for a gold medal was, was pretty good TV. I think everyone will agree. And coming down to the last hole that, uh, yeah. you know, it's, uh, and, you know, I was lucky enough to have front row seats to it or something that, uh, you know, playing with Tiger and, and then playing with those two going head to head for a gold and silver medal or something I'll never ever forget. In terms of the format, the Olympic format, so it's stroke play, how does that generally differ to what you are, I'd say, on the European tour? Because I know a lot of uh, golfers, I think, have, have not liked the format at the Olympics. I mean, is that something that's generally not popular to have a, a stroke play format? I mean, kind of how does that differ? Yeah, and I've been pretty strong on, on that as well. I think we play four-round tournaments all year long and um, our whole careers have been four-round tournaments. Very rarely do we get to play on a team, I think. The Olympics is the perfect opportunity to have two guys, two two girls from the same country on one team. The two or three best scores each day count. Um, four gold medals are handed out at the end of the week. Um, you know the guys and the girls. You know that whole equality now, having the guys and the girls together playing on one team, yeah. is an opportunity that you know they've got to take. Hopefully, you know we've, they've given it a go a couple of times now, just singles event, but. We do that week in, week out. You know, I think it's just a, the perfect opportunity to have the guys and the girls out there on the course um, as part of the team, part of a broader team, their countries um, competing for, yeah, four gold medals for those, um, for their countries and for themselves. In terms of the whole experience, we always love to hear from the athletes about just outside of the competing, sort of everything else. So you talk about kind of never imagining that you go to Olympics. I mean, what was it like when you got to Rio? I mean, did you get to do things like the opening ceremony and then kind of when you got to the athletes' village, you know, was it just a case of it was really starting to hit you? You know, you're bumping into Michael Phelps, the same Bolt, things like that. All of a sudden you're like, like crap, I'm, I'm an Olympian. This is hitting me right now. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we stayed out near the golf course um, in a house um, just with traffic and all that sort of stuff. With logistics was a bit of a... A nightmare, but um, we went. We actually got to the village a couple of nights um, and went and had dinner in the in the um, in the village there. So it was it was pretty cool to go and you know experience the the team aspect of everything. You know, Scotty Hand and myself were on men's team, but we we got to experience that broader um, Australian Olympic team. So that's something that uh, was pretty cool. We didn't get to do opening or closing ceremonies, but um, going to the village and and experiencing that was pretty cool. In, in terms of the tournament itself, you, you come out firing, shoot a 63, an Olympic record until, uh, I believe, the final round of Tokyo just gone. So you kind of had that. I mean, do, do you go into the tournament with aspirations for a medal? I mean, kind of were you hoping that was achievable? And after sort of the first day when you're shooting a 63, you're thinking, well, well shit, this is actually a possibility right now. Yeah, I think going there, you're just trying to, exactly that. You're trying to win a medal for your country. And that, uh, yeah, that would have been an amazing uh, in itself. But, yeah, I think any time we go onto the golf course, you know, I'm, I know 99.9% of golfers go out there and they want to do as well as they can until that, that last putt is knocked in. So, it, um, yeah, unlike, unfortunately, I didn't get to, you know, I was a few shots away from getting even a bronze medal, but it, um, yeah, I think my overall performance, I was, you know, I think especially shooting that 63 in the first round, again, on that stage, um, 
was pretty big. I thought it's, uh, you know, it's probably one of the best rounds I've ever played um, as far as scoring wise, but I didn't actually feel like I played that well. I just, one of those days where everything kind of went right um, for me, but I was struggling with my game that week. But so to go and shoot 63 was pretty cool the way I was actually playing. But um, yeah, I think, you know, when Rory, I wasn't, uh, I'll be honest, I wasn't cheering for Rory Sabatini with a couple of holes to go in Tokyo. That's <laughs> sure. but, uh, I thought, you know, I've been, uh, a couple of mates have, have sort of been egging me on a little bit. I sort of stirring me up a little bit. Your, your record's gone, but. Had it for had it for five years. Had it for more than four years. So yeah. that's what I'm holding on to. You can literally list yourself amongst all the great Olympians out there. You know that you were you were an Olymp- you were you were in the same bowl as the same person. You were Olympic <laughs> record holders. I mean, come yeah, on. No. It, uh, I haven't been compared to Usain Bolt too often for my speed. That's for sure. But, uh, <laughs> you can take it now. You can take yeah, it. We've mentioned sort of the media reaction. I, I remember sort of particularly after that first round. Kind of all of a sudden, everybody was taking you know notice of golf at the Olympics and was really getting behind it. But I I believe in Coral where like the whole town was stopping. I believe there was green and gold balloons around everywhere. I think your dad was sort of really leading this charge. I mean, did you sort of get much feedback of what it was like back home? Kind of people watching you at the Olympics. Yeah, I think. Um, yeah, I think I sent quite a few videos and, and photos down at the Coral Golf Club and, and um, yeah, the members and, and people in the town getting down there to watch it and whatnot. Um, you know, I don't think mum and dad slept all week uh, once we hit <laughs> off. So it's, um, but, yeah, it's, that's the cool thing about, you know, being lucky enough to play this game for a long time and it's, you know, being a part of, you know, two now three amazing golf clubs you know, Coral Golf Club, originally Kingswood Golf Club, which is now Peninsula Kingswood Golf Club. You know, a big part of it was when you come back home and, and um, interacting with the membership, you know, they're riding every single shot that you hit. Um, you know, they and they are a huge, huge part of it. You know, it's a big part of why I did it for so long because I had so much support from Coral and from Kingswood, now Peninsula Kingswood, that, you know, that's the thing that kept pushing me. I wanted to do well for them. Um because you know that when you, when you're away and on the other side of the world, that all these members have got your back. You know that you've got that support there. So that's a big part of you know my entire career was was for them for sure. You ended up finishing in a, in a tie for fifth, as you said, sort of a couple of shots back from the the bronze medal. I mean, given that you're sort of in a medal position for the first three rounds, and ultimately, I mean, do you, do you walk away? disappointed or can you reflect five years later now and go okay well I'm a top five Olympic finisher you're still the highest placed Australian male ever in a golf tournament at the Olympics so I mean kind of do you look at it differently now than you did say on on the final day when you did finish in fifth oh 100% yeah and I think anyone who doesn't would be probably lying maybe because you know that was a once in a lifetime opportunity for me and I was in a great position to to maybe jag a medal and you know watching the Olympics in Tokyo really brought back that to me and you know not that I ever got upset about it or anything but it was kind of that you know just I suppose a what if you know what if I did get a medal you know that's something that for my kids that again that's for them to have that medal in the in the next stages of of their life when I'm gone and you know to know that you know something as little as that that they can hold on to knowing you know that they played a huge part in that as well that's what I think would have been really cool. And that's my biggest, um, I suppose, regret or um, disappointment, I think. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I, I still think that, you know, when I sit back here and now I'm coaching other players or members down here at, at Peninsula Kingswood that, you know, for them, you know, 
I suppose me going off to the Olympics and, and finishing fifth is is still I I still believe it's quite amazing from where I started off my golfing journey to to getting to that point in my career is uh, something I'll yeah I'll never never forget. Which again, you know, forever for the rest of your life, you are an Olympian. That can never be taken away from you. And then again, top five at an Olympics, an Olympic record holder, and that sort of stuff too. But as you said, you know, you did it for your kids and everything. I mean, what was their reaction? Kind of obviously, they're they're a bit older now. Maybe can sort of appreciate a little bit more. But I mean, is this something that sort of they're very proud of? Obviously, of you for what you have achieved. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, and even you know, taking you know things like my blazer and that to school, and um, taking bits and pieces of my uniform and all that sort of stuff and, you know, other kids, um, I suppose, coming up to them and saying, oh, your dad did well at the Olympics and all that sort of stuff, um, that's all great, but it kind of, yeah, I think it's it just gives them, to me it was just all about them having, for them to be able to chase their own dreams and goals later on in life. That was the big part of why I wanted to do it. And, you know, once I got on my journey of chasing golf, that's exactly what I did and ended up, going to the Olympics, like, it's pretty cool. And, you know, that was just, you know, they they played a huge part in it and, um, you know, it's something that, you know, I'm sure they'll never forget to. In, in terms of Tokyo, we obviously saw Cam and Mark compete. I mean, was there any ever possibility for you to go to Tokyo or is that just based on the rankings and sort of at the end of the day, Golf Australia chooses, you know, offers it to whoever's high in the rankings and then whoever accepts it? I mean, sort of, I guess, was Tokyo ever on the radar for you as a potential return to the Olympics? No, not for, for me. I think I was already, I wasn't, you know, after, a couple of years after I, I went, um, I wasn't playing well enough to, to purely off rankings, the top two players, um, then if someone declines, it goes down to the next person. I'm a, I'm a hell of a long way down that list these days. To um, so it's yeah, it's not something that um, I think potentially if um, if we, if we had free travel and we, there was no COVID, I probably would have gone to just as a spectator, just to um, be part of that environment, I suppose, and um, and watch it and support the guys. You know. The, they're two pretty good mates of mine, Cam and, and Leash. So, it, um, yeah, it would have been pretty cool to go and, and cheer them on. And, you know, I want nothing more than an Australian golfer to get a, a medal at the Olympics. I can't wait for, for Paris to um, come around and and give that support to not only it's all true. I mean, you got fifth, Hannah got fourth. So I'm guessing we're going to get a bronze in Paris, then it will be silver in LA and then gold in Brisbane. It's kind of a progression there that I think oh, it's working so. out to gold in Brisbane. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I mean, it, uh, it's something I'll be cheering as hard as I possibly can for, you know, I just think it'd be amazing for an Australian golfer to, to jag a medal and imagine an Australian golfer getting an Olympic gold. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. So, to, yeah, I think that's that's our um, that's our objective and, you know, I'll be doing everything I can to cheer for, for whoever it might be next time around. Now, I'll get to some fun questions to close this off, uh, Marcus, and just sort of get an update on what you're up to now. But I've, I've got to ask a question. Every Australian wants to know the answer to this. Does having a mullet help in golf? Is, is that why Cam's so good? Is it the mullet, basically, that helps him out there? And do you wish you had a mullet when you were playing golf? If someone said to me that I could play as well as Cam plays, but I had to grow a mullet, I would grow a mullet hand down. <laughs> no problem whatsoever. I would... It, uh, I sent Cam a message saying, "Look, even though it looks shit, it, um, it, <laughs> it, uh, if you play the way you play, I think everyone should be wearing mullets. He's an unbelievable golfer and 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 great bloke too. He's um, yeah, it's uh, 
yeah, it's is what it is. But you know that represents Australia, doesn't it? And, and mullet oh, with the letters yeah. or engraved in the side of your head. That's for sure. That's what Greg Norman needed when he had the yips all those times on the tour, right? If he had the mullet, he would have won all those uh, bloody majors in the US, right? I, it's the hairstyle, Greg. Come on. Yeah, that's all about the mullet. That's for sure. All about the mullet. I just love how it's come back. It just came back out of nowhere. It's not like there was a gradual progression back to the mullet. It was like man bun, boom, mullet. It just it just I happened. Think, I think it days the number again. It looks like it's on a bit of a downward spiral. Assuming AFL footballers have got them now, so I think, yeah. Yes. <laughs> on to the and next the, one. Add it with the tash and it's kind of like, what's going on there? It's a weird look. But, uh, yeah, before we get to the final questions, uh, Marcus, uh, sort of, I mean, what, what's, what's your life right now? Kind of, uh, kind of what, what is Marcus Fraser up to when it comes to not only golf but uh, outside of golf? Yeah, I think it's now, it's, you know, again, very, I've never changed a thing. I'm lucky enough to have a long career playing-wise and now you know, I'm only 43 still, so I'm, I'm actually doing some – I've taken a position down at Peninsula Kingswood um, – you know, it's been a big part of my life, Kingswood Golf Club and now Peninsula Kingswood. So I'm director of coaching down here now, um, Peninsula Kingswood. So we've got a we've got 2,000 members down here, that um, a brand-new facility. Um, you know, we've got an unbelievable membership base that, you know, um, are just pretty passionate about their golf. So helping to make this department of the golf club as, as best I possibly can. And um, we... Yeah, I'm, that's really got my focus now, doing some coaching and passing on all the things that, you know, I learned over my career onto the members here and, and some outside clients as well. But um, it's it's something that's really lit a fire in me. I, I was kind of a little bit lost after I stopped playing. I'm not sure what I was going to do. I probably had a couple of years off where the garden was looking pretty good and that's all I was really doing. So um, <laughs> it's now on to, to something else. And, yeah, this has really sparked something in me to – um, you know, having this facility here and the members here um, has really got me um, pretty excited. So it's, yeah, once uh, we get out of this lockdown and, and we're getting quite a bit of, um, I suppose, momentum in between these lockdowns and every time these lockdowns, it kind of just kills our momentum. So we're looking forward to getting rid of all these, get everyone vaccinated and, and move on and, and open up this world again and, um, let's get back out on the golf course as often as we can. Well, I think you should get back on the golf course. I mean, 43, you're still young, Marcus. So you've got 11 years to get back into to, you know the zone and qualify for Brisbane. You could be that first gold medalist for Australia at the Olympics. You've got plenty of time. Yeah, I, think it, um, I think having played for a long time, you understand what needs to go into playing at the highest level. And, you know, it, it takes a lot of effort, um, hard work, and also for your family to buy into what you're doing. And I couldn't after stopping that for quite a while now, I couldn't possibly ask my family to to buy back in just for me to chase my dream of that. I've had my turn and my wife's got her own business now and the kids are enjoying having me around and, um, you know, part of their routine because their routine's been pretty disruptive for a long time, me coming and going all the time. So it's now, it's, it's a great time for me to move into this and into this role and um, something I'm, I'm loving. So, so, Are they golfers though? Like could we maybe see them in Brisbane? Not as yet. Yeah, they're sort of – I'm trying to trying to get them into it, but they're just – yeah, 
might take a little bit more time. <laughs> the incentive, the incentive, Home Olympics in 11 years' time. Uh, now, we close off uh, most of our interviews, Marcus, with a series of sort of fun get-to-know-you questions. These are based off a Team Canada questionnaire they used to do back before Rio and uh, Pyeongchang, and it's simple questions, easy questions, and we won't ask you to do the drawings. I mean, if you really want homework, we can give it to you, but outside of that, you, you don't, you're not obligated to do it if you don't want to. But I'll start off with, and again, you can answer your own. You're allowed to do this. What is your favourite ever Olympic moment? Oh, Cathy Freeman, for sure. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. It's a it's a great answer. And um, yeah, we, it's sort of one of those ones. Every Australian could be like, where were you when you watched that? You know, the whole nation stopped. It's, it's very, very true. If you could choose any Olympic host city, where would it be? Oh, it's got to be Melbourne. Melbourne's yeah. the best, best city in the world. Australia's the best country in the world, so why not? Bring it back, right? Absolutely. Brisbane has its term. I mean, all the facilities, they talk about Brisbane having like 80% of everything ready to go. Melbourne's got 100% of everything ready to go. You don't oh, need to build anything. We could have, have it next two weeks, no problem. Exactly. Well, they would, I remember sort of in the lead up to Rio when it was all like, oh, they're not going to go ahead. They're not ready. I think it was John Coates came out and was like, oh, well, Melbourne's ready to go. We can host them tomorrow. So <laughs> they're always the backup city. Um, in your spare time, what do you most like to do? Oh, I'm a bit of a garden tragic, so spending time out in the garden, um, getting the kids out there, just getting that fresh air um, with the kids, just yeah, just mucking around at home, a bit of a homebody. So as much time at home as possible with the kids is uh, is my ideal day. Now, is that is the gardening thing a golf quirk? Because obviously, you know, golf courses are beautifully manicured. You know, they're they're pristine. Is that kind of just your years of golfing? You just you have to have everything perfect so that translates into gardening. I think having been able to walk on pretty much perfect grass for a long time you kind of want that at home and you know leash is the same you know one of my best mates on when on tour Wade Ormsby you know we're always talking about different mowers and different uh, <laughs> things we can use to get our lawns as as good we're always sending photos back and forth to each other of you know once spring hits at uh yeah we've got we've got some issues that's for sure but it's uh it's one of those things that we've been yeah we've been walking on grass for a long time so we want good grass to walk on at home yeah, that's an excuse. I like it. Um, what is the weirdest instruction a coach ever gave you? Oh, jeez. Um, no, I've been pretty lucky that Dennis McDade's given me some pretty good instruction over the time, but, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not too sure. <laughs> I'm a bit lost with that one, sorry. It'll, it'll come to you at one point. Um, what is your favourite workout? <laughs> no workout. No workout. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyone who knows me or has seen me at... Uh, I've never been big on fitness, but I was, probably stretching is my big thing. I've always, I've always enjoyed the stretching component, trying to make sure my body was aligned as well as it could be. But even though the shape of it was never too good. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, if you could have lunch with any one person, who would it be? Now, I'm assuming sporting person, or, or just any anyone. Anyone, person. yeah. yeah. Oh, I think just having a beer with my old man at the pub, having a, having a chicken palm is probably the, oh, the ideal one for me. Perfect. Well, that might lead into the next question. Uh, similar answer, potentially. Your favourite sandwich is? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking the chicken palm sandwich. They're always a good good value. Well, no, chicken avocado and cheese is hard to oh, beat. Yeah. Stock okay. standard. Um, I get a lot of very from my wife saying, is that all you ever eat? But uh, <laughs> yeah, no. Nothing wrong with it if you like it, right? Yeah, exactly. You know? There's a reason why we have our favourite things. Um, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? Oh, something to do with hitting the ball further. I've, I've been <laughs> nowhere in my whole life. So to, um, 
yeah, something that would make the golf ball go further, that's for sure. Now, actually, I have to ask the cliche golfer question, which I'm sure you get all the time. Have you hit a hole in one? Nine hole in one. So nine hole in one. All right, not just yeah. one. Nine. Wow. Nine, um, never won a thing. Um, which is, <laughs> yeah, it. Uh, yeah, that's one of the big regrets. Would have been nice to win a car or something, but yeah. No, no my brother won a car up in Indonesia for a hole in one, but um, yeah, that's uh, that's one he's got over me. And a professional golfer is the worst people to go to either a driving range or mini golf. Uh, like, are you just you just get into that zone where you're too competitive and you can't hold back, or is it sort of a bit of a relaxation for you? You can have a bit of silly fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can't go to a driving range with a pro golfer. They try and try and run the show. We're all self obsessed, and um, yeah, no, go to uh, Top Golf, and all of a sudden you just get a little bit too, you know, competitive and fancy to put all the flashing lights on your screen. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, don't don't go with a pro golfer. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, what is the best candy in the world? Best candy. Hmm. In uh, in Sweden, they have those little cars um, that uh, I can't remember what they're called, but yeah, they're incredible. But, uh, okay. I'll have to get uh, some mates to bring me some back once if they're going back through there. They're, uh, Sounds good to me. Little green, like pink, and white cars. I think they are. They're, yeah. One's right. too many. Twenty's not enough. Yeah, <laughs> always the way. Uh, you've already answered this one, I feel. Uh, your favourite sports team as a kid was Essendon. Do you, any other teams that you sort of closely follow? Was it Bombers and nothing? It's Bombers the whole way. Yeah, it's uh, all or nothing, that's for sure. I, I will tell you, I was a Bomber supporter for about a half of football when I was six years old when you guys won in 93. I turned to my dad and I'm like, Dad, can I go for Essendon? And he basically said, you can go for them for the remainder of this game, but if you ever utter those words again, you will move out of home. So, uh, yeah, Colton for life from that moment on. <laughs> that was pretty much the conversation I had with my dad when I was growing up. It was, it was like I'm trying to find a footy team to follow. And he said, well, there's only one team to follow. So that yep. If you want to be fed and you want to live under this roof, that's who you follow. <laughs> and people think that's harsh, but I, I like it. I think well, it works. I still inflict that same yeah. on, my, on my kids. It's, yeah, enjoy sleeping on the grass outside. It, uh, yep. You don't want to exactly. follow. Exactly. Yep, it's 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 a harsh but fair. That's that's why you look at it. Now, I I hope you answer. Well, there's there's maybe two here that you can answer, but there's one way I hope you go, uh, and I'll follow up with that if you don't. Uh, my your favourite sports movie is. Well, I'm not a massive movie buff to be honest. I uh, I have no idea. I would I would think the stock standard golfing answers would either be Caddyshack or Happy Gilmore, but yeah, then I right. guess you'd probably get sick of the references for those movies all the time. Too, up or something like that, maybe I'm not sure. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. How how often do you get the Happy Gilmore sort of you know people coming out there and you know doing the whole run up to the ball sort of style thing? Because I've been to uh, driving ranges before and it literally has a sign saying no Happy Gilmore shots. <laughs> yeah, I think um, yeah, late in the day in a corporate day or a charity event or a. Um, or a pro-am that, uh, yeah, once they've had a few beers, they come out, that's for sure. Go for the happy Gilmore. Uh, if you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be? Right here, right here in Melbourne. At, uh, Perfect answer. Yeah, at, uh, nowhere better. I like it. Um, this is an interesting one. We've had this one for the last few uh, guests, and I, I like this because it's a deep question. When you were little, what was one thing that you always thought? Oh, it is deep, isn't it? Um mm. I think probably just coming back from the way we were brought up, you know, the way Dad, Mum, Dad brought us up was just if you do something, do it properly. So I think working hard, and if any time I went and did something, it was like do it as well as I possibly could. Good answer. I like it. Uh, now the final one. As a dad, I'm hoping that you've got some good dad jokes in your back pocket, Marcus. But 
What is your favourite joke to tell? Oh, gee, oh, well, it probably comes from my son. This, yeah, what happens? Um, what happens when Woolworths burns down? Coles. No, <laughs> so that's, that's my <laughs> son's. Uh, that's been handed on to me for a yeah for a dad joke. That's good. Yeah. I like it. Wow. Yeah. Maybe they can use that in marketing somehow. For yeah. I don't know whether that would benefit Woolworths more or Coles. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, that's an interesting one. I love it. Great. Marcus, it's, it's been a lot of fun chatting with you on the show today, mate. Before we let you go, anything you want to plug, social media, websites, anything out there that people can either follow you or anything that you're doing out there? No, I think, um, yeah, for me now, it's just all about, um, you know, this new, um, I suppose, the avenue that I've gone down now down at Peninsula Kingsville, we've started the, the PK Academy. Um, so it's PK Academy. Um, underscore PKCGC um, on Instagram. So we're going to, over time, probably grow that. The members, um, it's a members academy here at the Golf Club, but other people can come in um, through bookings and, and limited spots available for outside of the membership. So it's something that, uh, as I said earlier, it's something that's lit a fire in me and really, dang, Dennis McDade um, is going to join us down here at, at some point. So it, uh, yeah, it's something pretty exciting and, you know, looking, looking forward to the next uh stage of my life down here well we're looking forward to it as well looking forward to again the big return brisbane 2032 or the kids and uh marcus pleasure to chat with you mate and please use the line that you are the same as the same bolt uh, an olympic <laughs> record holder you can take that for life please yeah. use it yeah no, but, uh, not too many similarities there i think he I, i'd hate to think i'd be he'd probably lap me in a in a hundred meter sprint that's for sure i'd, I'd, <laughs> uh, I'd hate to think what would happen if i tried to run against him or got compared to him. And a massive, massive thanks to Marcus there. So much fun being able to learn about his time at the Olympics. And it's so unique. It's kind of one of these sports that so many athletes never imagined they could become Olympians. And then all of a sudden they get that opportunity. We saw a lot of that in Tokyo when it came to the skateboarders, the surfers, the sports climbers, all those athletes that probably never imagined going to an Olympics. And here they have that opportunity. So for all our break dancers listening, I'm sure that you have never thought you'd have that opportunity until another three years time when it comes to Paris. So uh, yeah, go, go you good thing. Uh, thanks Marcus for his time. Next episode, we will have another interview for you now. Now, it's sort of weird that you're kind of listening to some of these sometimes and we're saying, this is our next guest and then we'll bring you a certain other interview. So kind of how we're working it at the moment is we're, we're banking a lot of interviews, of course, for you to enjoy in the lead up to Beijing and we're enjoying bringing them to you. But we sort of also want to spread out the love a little bit and bring you interviews and every now and then we'll bring you a general episode. So uh, obviously we've uh, recently had a look towards Beijing 2022. We'll have some more Olympic athletes in terms of winter athletes coming your way. But we've also got some other great projects that myself, Colin and Jared will be doing. We've, we've long talked about doing a sports episode where we just talk about Olympic sports in general, what works, what doesn't work, what we'd like to see, what we wouldn't like to see anymore. So that's one that's coming up very, very soon. And I mentioned several weeks back the idea about doing a ranking the Olympic medal designs. We talked a little bit back uh, with Kerry Pothas, of course, about how I really enjoy the design of an Atlanta medal. And uh, we're going to do it. We're going to do that very soon. We're going to rank the Olympic medals. We we love ranking things on all our shows connected to Off the Podium. Of course, if you've ever listened to the Oz Network, Double Oz 7, these are things that we do quite a lot. We love ranking. So we're going to come together. We're going to put together a list and rank 
the Olympic medals. Now, of course, there are a lot of Olympics. We realize that. But we are going to cap it from Lillehammer onwards, sort of when Olympic medals, they started getting a little bit fancy. Gone were just kind of a, a general ribbon with a medal at the bottom. They started to add the Olympics on the ribbon. So it would say Lillehammer 94, Atlanta 96, Nagano 98, Sydney 2000, like you would see kind of the Olympiad put on the ribbon. So that is something that we will be doing soon as well. And I'm very pumped for that one because let's just say when it comes to the medals, there's actually a lot more talking points and particularly around the winter medals. The winter medals always seem to go a bit kooky, a bit quirky, a bit interesting when it comes to the design. So uh, I'm, I'm looking at you, Torino and Sochi. So we will um, we will definitely be doing that episode, as well as so many athlete interviews. We have got some great ones coming your way. And also outside of uh, Olympian athletes, uh, Olympic interviews, Olympian interviews, see, I can speak proper. We have got some uh, sort of non-Olympians, but sort of work within the Olympics. So we're talking journalists, reporters, and people are involved behind the scenes of the Olympics. Sort of more of a, hey, what's going on? How do you achieve this? What do you do that? And working on Olympics in general. So we've got some great things coming your way and we implore you to stay on board and stay tuned. And you can do that, of course, subscribe to the podcast, all the good podcast channels out there, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, iHeartRadio, we're on all of them. Search for Off The Podium, hit the subscribe button, leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear what you think of the show. And if you like my voice and other voices that involve Colin Jared, you can hear us on some other shows as well that are all connected to this sort of sisterhood of shows, basically, out there to keep you entertained. And social media, stay up to date with everything on there. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, follow us on all those. Send us a message. We'd like to hear what you think of the show. And as always, any guests you'd like us to track down, shoot us a message. We're always open to any guests on this show connected to the Olympics, so we'd love to hear your ideas of who you would like to have on the show. Thanks again to Marcus for his time. Thanks again for you for listening. We'll speak to you next time here on Off the Podium. Good night. Turning Japanese up, they come turning Japanese up,